Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stanko is out West. In the Southwest is Eddie Johnson, 17 years in the league, 1989 Sixth Man of the Year. For 11 years in the league, Eddie averaged 17-plus points per game, played for the Kings, the Suns, Seattle, Charlotte, Indy, Houston, been a longtime TV analyst for the Phoenix Suns. He's also the co-host of the best program and highest-rated program on SiriusXM NBA Radio. That is the NBA Today with Justin Termini, 4 to 7 p.m. Eastern time. Eddie, I want to go back to high school at the Amp City title game, Westinghouse against Phillips, your senior year. You fouled out. How do you let that happen? I don't know how that happened, but I understand it. We were, we were playing a team, man, that was like, like five point guards. And it was led by Darius Clemens, uh, who went on to star at Loyola uh, in Chicago. And they trapped us, man. We were undefeated team, man. We were averaging probably about 110 points a game. We were killing teams. Do you remember? That's like a 40. That's a 40-minute game, right? That, I mean, that's a 32-minute game in high school, eight-minute quarter. I mean, we were just rolling over teams. But we had a tremendous team. Myself, Mark Aguirre uh, was on the team. Skip Dillard, Bernard Randolph, and all three of those guys went on to DePaul. We had a guy, Michael Jenkins, who went on to start at Northwestern. And we had a number of other guys that went to Division One schools around the country. And we were like the Beatles in Chicago in that particular year. And uh, no one thought that we could be beaten. But we were beaten by a bunch of little guys that trapped us and uh, took the ball out of our hands and sent us home crying. During your, your early days, you mentioned Mark Aguirre. I read that you also grew up with Isaiah Thomas, that he was a neighborhood friend. So the three of you guys hanging out, can you describe that scene for me, what that was like at that time and how good Isaiah was as a, as a young kid? Yeah, it was a little disjointed because Isaiah was a little bit younger than us. Uh, and how it all came about, you know, although we were all living on the west side of Chicago, you know, back in the day in Chicago, it was almost like what we're dealing with now. It was social distancing. I mean, we were divided by blocks. And so, for instance, Mark Aguirre lived in the area on the west side called K-Town. I lived in the area called L-Town. And then Isaiah was a little bit further west than us. And so, although we knew about each other, we would encounter each other, uh, we didn't run around and hang out initially. Uh, and then Mark was playing for a school, Austin High School, and we beat them in the playoffs one year. And he scored like 40-something points on us, but we beat them. And he saw how good our team was. He decided to transfer. And so he transferred to Westinghouse. It was my senior year that he became eligible, uh, but he transferred to Westinghouse after his sophomore year. And then along the way, we ran into Isaiah. And how I ran into Isaiah is his uncle brought him to a court that I played on and challenged me to a one-on-one -on -one game against this kid that was like an eighth grader. And I think I was like a junior <laughs> or sophomore in high school. And so I'm messing wow. around. I'm messing around thinking, okay, whatever. You know, I'm going through the motions. And all of a sudden, I look at the score. He needed one more bucket to beat me. And I started getting frantic. You know, people were watching and everything. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I put the old man move on him, like still a young guy. I started backing him down, backing him down, just laying it up on him. He, he wasn't strong enough to beat me. And Isaiah remembers that to this day. We always laugh and talk about it how it took that part of the game to beat me. Uh, and I say, yeah, but long as I beat you, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, as our college career went on, obviously we encountered each other in college. Isaiah and I did. Uh, he played at Indiana, and we just became – we stuck to being very good friends. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's like a success story out of the west side of Chicago. What were pickup games like at that time? Very difficult. Uh, if you lost, you're going to wait about an hour and a half to play. And it's sort of like, you know, the mentality I think NBA players are going to have to have when they go back to work without the fans. And if they put them in one location and they got to play, it's going to be like pickup basketball if you lose, you're out. And uh, so that's how it was for us uh, back in the neighborhood. We'd be up at 7 a.m., be on the court. I know I would. I'd be the first out there. Uh, we had those chain nets and uh getting ready to play and in the summertime school was out we were out there all day i mean that that was our that was our drug 
uh, to be out there and just playing. But if you lost, you know, you could be sitting there for an hour and a half waiting for the next game. All right, so then you mentioned that was your drug, but you grew up. There were drugs and gangs and violence and guns all around Mm -hmm. you. When did you realize that basketball was your way to stay safe? Well, just really, my brothers were the example for me. Uh, I learned from their pitfalls in life, and I decided I wasn't going to go that route. And so that's why I love them dearly, because if it wasn't for them to show me the right or wrong, right up close and personal, it's no telling what I probably would have, you know, decided to do or or toyed with. And so in seeing one of my brothers get hooked on drugs early in life, uh, be a gangbanger, lose his life at the ripe old age of 25, uh, my cousin, who I was very close to, lost his life at 18 because he was a gangbanger. Uh, those messages just resonated with me. Uh, and I just decided that there's no way I'm going to do that. And I just went out of my way to avoid those situations. I was encountered many times by gang, threatening me, telling me I better come to the meeting. But I'd always had my brothers to protect me, uh, to just keep them away from me. And then once they realized that I was sincere in what I wanted to do, and it's unfortunate that, you know, they got to respect you as a ball player to to let you alone, but that was just really how it was growing up where I did, that they started not to bother me anymore. And they started to kind of live through me and appreciate what I was doing and to keep people away from me. And so it made my life and and my travels, you know, to college a lot easier. Eddie, when you finished up in high school you played in the albert schweitzer games in in germany mm-hmm. um and you played with magic johnson what was your mm-hmm. your first experience meeting magic and then what was it like to play with him at that time yeah well the first time i met him i actually i was an i was embarrassingly uh alternate in the mcdonald's high school game and they used to have alternates in that game and it was it was really embarrassing because I, I was a player of the year in Illinois, uh, and I went there and I was kind of humbled that I was I had to wait for somebody maybe to get injured in order to play in this game. And a letter from me to that organization really stopped them from having alternates uh, because it was an, it was an embarrassing deal I had to deal with. But at that game, I met Magic. Uh, mm. Not only just Magic, I met. Albert King, I met uh, oh, yeah. uh, Pete, Pete Butko, a legend in the New York area, uh, Wayne McCoy, uh, Tommy Baker, Jeff Lamp, uh, all tremendous basketball players. And uh, I just remember practicing, and I was doing everything that they were doing. I just wasn't going to play in the game. Uh, I remember practicing and just Everybody was saying that Albert King was the unreal talent and he was going to be tremendous, Wayne McCoy. And I'm telling you, after 20 minutes of watching Magic, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I had never seen anything like it. <laughs> I mean, I'd never seen a guy that tall, six, eight and a half, maybe that's what he was then, handle the ball and just play with the enthusiasm that he played with. And... So to tell you not, I was like one of the best players in them practices. And they were wondering, why the heck are you not playing? Because I could play with Magic because that's what I did. Ran the floor, spotted up, caught it and shot it. I looked really good. And the coaches were wondering, why is this guy not playing? And and I just remember, man, just just watching him, man, just how he carried himself on the basketball court. And one incident. When I, and I wish I could walk it back, uh, but I was being recruited heavily by the same schools he were he was. And Michigan, he had narrowed his choices down to Michigan and Michigan State. And I remember we were getting off the bus, and he was right in front of me. And all those college coaches were out there just grabbing at us, clamoring for us. I mean, it was just amazing how they just salivate over us, man. But they had to do their job. And I remember getting off the bus, and I was walking into the hotel behind Magic. And I remember the Michigan coaches uh, were just so, you know, enthralled with him as they should. And they were recruiting me as well. I remember he walked in and held the door for me. They let the door on me, let go. And the door just came back in my face. 
me as a young kid, I got ticked about that. You know, and I was like, hmm, I ain't going there. You know, I mean, just that little thing, right, can just make <laughs> you think differently. And uh, so as, Ma- as Magic and I, we left the uh, McDonald's and we went to uh, Germany for the Albert Schweitzer game. And mm. he and I became very close there. And uh, we were beating teams over there like, man, we were beating about 50, 60 points. And, and Magic was just destroying people, man. He was just making the game look so easy. And I remember one game, we had, we had this American coach. And Donnell Valentine and Tommy Baker were our guards. And Magic must have made like two or three turnovers. He was grabbing the ball, pushed up court. And it really wasn't his fault. Guys just didn't realize he was getting ready to pass it to him because he wasn't looking at him. And I remember the coach took him out and said, look, man, you're, you're a forward. You're the biggest guy on the team. Why do you keep dribbling the ball up the court? And I remember I was out of the game at the time, and I was sitting next to Magic, and he literally was, like, getting ready to cry. He was like, this dude don't know me, man. That's how I play. I ain't no forward, man. I'm a point guard. And it really bothered him. Wow. And I remember looking and I remember looking at him, I said, Magic, man, what are you gonna do, man? You get in the game, do what you wanna do. You ain't gonna do nothing. And so he went back in the game, and I'm telling you, it's not on video. It was the best three minutes of basketball I think I've still seen to this day. He was he got the rebound, he went up court, he was throwing it between people's legs, behind his back, without looking. It was amazing. And I'm sitting next to the coach, right? And we're watching this. And he looks at his assistant coach and he said, What the hell was I thinking? <laughs> it's a true story. Wow. It's a true story. It's a true story. I I, I just like I just started laughing. I just like I just couldn't believe it. And then after that, he tried to get me to go to Michigan State with him, and I thought about it, and I just wanted to just create my own foundation, right? Me being a knucklehead and thinking I can go do it. And I, to this day, I mean, I'm, Illinois is glad that they got me for four years, and they hate that I tell the story, but it's a true story. I mean, if I had to do it over again, <laughs> I probably would have followed Magic, man, because that guy, that guy made you a lottery pick. So. There you go. Sports, of course, have come to a screeching halt. Basketball bench, pitchers off the mound. But our friends at MyBookie, they're not going to let you down. You can stay sane, entertained, with access to your favorite games like blackjack, roulette, slots. You can even bet on war. Not actual combat, but like the card game war. And it doesn't matter whether you're out on the front lines, quarantine at home. Fun doesn't have to come to an end with MyBookie. Video poker is not your thing, but if you still need a fix... They've got you covered with a host of live casino dealers online. Professional dealers at their tables, live on the site 24-7. And so, of course, everybody's favorite team is sidelined because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So don't sweat it. My bookie has partnered with some of the leading esports brands to bring you wagers on virtual action, straight from the court, NBA 2K20. Plus, you can always do your part and make your bankroll great again. <laughs> Tough for me to even say by taking advantage of shifting odds on political bets. You can trust industry leaders in times like these, reliable, upright. Best of all, they pay you fast when you win. MyBookie.ag is the site. MyBookie.ag, use the promo code locked on NBA, 150% bonus on your first casino deposit. Promo code locked on NBA, 150% cash bonus on your first deposit, and you can claim those extra funds all the way up to 750 bucks. Promo code Locked on NBA at mybookie.ag. You spin, you win, get paid. Anything. I didn't rub it in. Uh, I didn't say anything because I knew how passionate he was about the game. And I think he knew how passionate I was. And I, I really didn't say anything. You know, he just walked off the court. I mean, he didn't say nothing. You know, and they <laughs> went on and won a title. And we went on and lost 11 out of our next 14 games after moving up to, I think, number one in the country for a weekend. Uh, Two undefeated teams that played. uh, The best, biggest game that the University of Illinois has ever had, even to this day. Uh, And we beat Michigan State and Magic when when no one thought that they could be beaten. 
uh, we beat them uh, on that particular day, and I knocked down a game winner. And 100,000 people swear they, they were at that game. You know, it grows every day. <laughs> well, hold up. So, so you hit the game winner, then you lose 11 of your next 14, simply because yes. you're reading your own headlines, walking around, walking around like you thought you could beat anybody? No, it pretty much the same thing happened to me again as it did in high school. We didn't have great point guard play. And our point guard had got hurt that year. Uh, Steve Lanter, uh, you know, he was battling some issues and all of that. And, and what happened is teams started at that time, it was no shot clock. And teams realized that they couldn't run with us. So they just start, you know, start milking the basketball. And teams like Iowa and Wisconsin, you know, we played low scoring games against them because they wouldn't shoot the ball. And, and that hurt us. Because we, we had good guard play in regards to running our offense, but we didn't have good guard play in regards to defending 90, you know, 94 feet. And teams took advantage of it. And we just could not find a way to adjust to it. And yeah, we lost 11 out of our next 14 games, which was amazing. Yikes. Was the NBA, when you got there, what you thought it would be as a rookie? You know, I was humbled, obviously. I was humbled and I was mature. Uh, I went the total four years. I needed all four years. Uh, for me, I showed up at college at 188 pounds. Uh, and I was on my back most of the time. And Lou Henson said, Eddie, you can shoot, but you can't shoot when you're on your back all the time. <laughs> and so I hit the weight, I hit the weight room, put on some weight, man, and got really big and strong and all of a sudden started dominating and being one of the top rebounders in the big 10. And and that matured me for the league. It truly did. I wish a lot of young players would, would run that same course, but you know they're not. Uh, and the league has to try to baby them and build them up when they got there. I was already ready-made, man. Uh, I was mentally ready-made. I was physically ready-made. But, you know, I had to prove to everybody that I could play and play small forward because in college I played a lot of power forward. I was a lot of guy in the paint a lot of times, even though I did step out and take a lot of shots as well. A lot of NBA teams thought I was a power forward. And we had a guy on our team named Reggie King uh, from Alabama who was pretty similar. He was a little bigger than me, but you know, he was about six, seven. I was going about six, seven and a half. I grew another half inch to maybe an inch once I got to the league. But, you know, they felt that I was a power forward, and I struggled. And sooner or later, they told me, you got to lose some weight, and I did. And then I developed my game, and so I went from averaging nine points a game my rookie year and almost being cut my second year in training camp uh, to actually starting, uh, in, you know, the next four or 500 games and averaging over 20 points a game. Well, hold up. How were you almost cut? <laughs> I was almost cut after my rookie year. Matter of fact, Cotton Fitzsimmons, this is a, this is a really funny story. Uh, Kevin Loder, who was drafted ahead of me the year before, uh, he took both of us in the gym, and Mike Woodson was the pastor, okay? So he took Kevin and Loder and I into a gym, and he said, I want you two, you're going to go one-on-one until you both drop, okay? And we went one-on-one probably for about an hour. And I'm talking about hard. We were knocking each other around, everything, and I beat them. You know, I got the best of them. And Cotton looked at me and said, okay, you're going to start the next night. And word got to me that they, if I didn't play well in this, in this exhibition game against Utah, that, you know, they probably would cut me because Kevin Lode had a guaranteed deal. And uh, he started me. And I think I had like 25 points and about 15 rebounds. <laughs> and and they were like, well, we we're good. And and that got <laughs> ended. Uh, but yeah, it, it was just that close. Now I think teams would have picked me up, but still, I mean, just to get cut that early was not a good sign. Question for you: While you're in Kansas City, you're part of the move to Sacramento, so. What was the wildest part of moving cities while you're part of an NBA franchise? Well, we were the worst team, one of the worst teams in the league when our owners uh, decided to sell to a group in Sacramento uh, led by Greg Lukenville. 
and I remember his name because you know he, he was very cheap. <laughs> so I remember him very well. But uh, that's just a shot at him right now, especially if he hears this podcast. But uh, you know they bought the team, and they bought the team because they were really being strategic. Uh, mm-hmm. They really wanted to develop the land that they were going to put the arena. And the land was mm-hmm. in a flood zone. And so they had some, some mischievous reasons at the beginning of why they wanted an NBA team. But they got it. And I think once they got it, they found out that the fans up in Sacramento was going to support this thing like crazy. And so during the course of the season, the end the last season in Kansas City, after we told the people there we were moving and we were only getting like a thousand people a game, maybe three thousand at best, that we had a West Coast trip and they decided to break up the trip and go to Sacramento and have some practices there to just, you know, market the team as they were getting ready to be moved there next year. And I remember landing in Sacramento. Now we're the one of the worst teams in the league, okay? So teams are Fans aren't coming to see the Kansas City Kings when we was on the road, okay? We were playing in front of small crowds, you know, in, in, in Kings <laughs> home arena. But when we got to Sacramento, when the plane landed and we got out at the airport, it was at least 8,000 people at the airport that agreed. We had never gotten that much attention, hmm. okay? And then we had our practice sold out thousands of people outside the practice facility screaming our name, knowing about us, hanging out at our hotel. I mean, uh, companies coming up to us and saying, you know, they like to develop a relationship with us as individual players. You'll never pay for a meal when you come here. I mean, it was it was almost like we won a title. It was crazy. And it, it, but it made us feel good. It made us feel good about the fact that we were moving because I love Kansas City. I was I was one of those ones that was not excited about moving. Uh, it was still in the Midwest. I was a Midwestern boy. I didn't care nothing about the winters. Uh, I'd never been that far away from home to go live. I was getting married that year, that summer coming up. I mean, it was a lot of anxiety that I had to deal with, and so I wasn't that gung ho. But going there and seeing the reception we got, man, loved it. Loved it. And it continued when we got there. I mean, just the best fans you ever want to play with. And we played in a converted office building in our first season there that held about, what, 10,000 fans. And it was the most intimidating place that you could ever play in. Matter of fact, we beat the 86 Celtics there. And that year, you know, the Celtics were just running over everybody. And we were able to pull a victory off against them. So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great opportunity to reinvent ourselves, and we really enjoyed playing there. All right, so after your rookie year, those next five years in Kansas City and Sacramento, you had two seasons in Sacramento before going mm-hmm. to Phoenix, you're averaging, 20, you're averaging 20 a game. Which of those years hurt the most that you weren't named an All-Star? Uh, well, in Kansas City, I, I just knew that, you know, it was going to be tough for me. And, and and listen, not, I'm not crazy. I, I grew up in an era where the small forward was the was the thing. Okay, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, ju- just to even be thought about, like in in that group, uh, it, you know, was just amazing, right? I mean, me being in the top ten and scoring one particular year, and you got small forwards like Mark Johnson, you got Bernard King, you got Purvis Short, you got Kiki Bandaway, you got Mark Aguirre, Mike high school teammate. I mean, you got Larry Nance. I mean, you got small forwards deluxe. And for me to even be thought of with those guys was just Alex English. I mean, it was just amazing for me. And I was just so just I was just so mesmerized from just being in that situation I never thought I would be in. And so yeah, it was a disappointment at times because I thought I got the best of a lot of them guys and outplayed them a lot of the time, but we weren't winning. And back in the day, if you weren't winning, you weren't making any all-star teams. I mean, that was pretty much known. Uh, you didn't win games or you didn't have a huge name. You weren't making, I mean, in the era where you got Dr. J and you got Jane, you know, you got eventually James Worthy, you got there's just so many guys that were good. And so I, I didn't too much cry over spilt milk back in the day when I was scoring a lot of points and didn't make it. It's only one year I really cried over spilt milk. 
And that's when the, the Kings traded me to Phoenix. And then, you know, two years later, I was averaging about 22 at the break off the bench, playing only 28 minutes. Now, I still don't know who got who, who can get what I had there, shooting almost 50% from the field, over 40% from three. Uh, if I was doing that in today's game, people would be jumping up and down. I'd be getting all kind of endorsements, okay? Back then, mm-hmm. it was just another day at the beach because it was so many forwards that they overlooked it still. And that, to me, was the most disappointing year. We were from 28 wins to 55 wins that season. Uh, we were, you know, I, I got the sixth man of the year that year. Uh, Kevin Johnson got most improved. Jerry Colangelo got, you know, uh, best uh, GM. I mean, it was just Tom Chambers, I think, made uh, first or second team All-NBA. I mean, we were just rolling. And and the fact that I didn't make the All-Star team that year, yeah, that bothered me more than anything. So when you're in Phoenix in in – 88, Cotton Fitzsimmons mm-hmm. takes over as head coach. He had coached you previously. Yeah. And as I read it, you're playing a December game against the Clippers. And you said at the beginning of the year, Cotton came to me and said, Eddie, you got to play good defense this year. I'm going to mess with your minutes. <laughs> and then Reggie Williams started talking smack to you before halftime. Take me through the rest of the story. Yeah, and I'll just jump maybe a few games before that. And that's a true story. You know, Cotton was like my dad. I, I grew up without a dad. My dad left my life at 13. And so what happens, you know, you latch on the father figure. And Cotton was the next in line to become that father figure. Uh, and he truly epitomized that uh, in that regard. You know, regardless how much he screamed at me on the basketball court, uh, he always knew how to check with me. He knew my family. Uh, he really cared about me uh, as a person and a basketball player. And he knew the way to whip me into focus and get me to play at a high level because he had me in Kansas City for all those years is to really berate me, uh, become his whipping boy. Uh, and because I embraced it, I didn't, you know, go south with it, as some people will. I kind of turned it around and showed him. So this particular season, you know, after he got me in a trade from, from Sacramento, he said, he said, Eddie, uh, he said, nah, I'm telling you, you know, you're going to have to play defense for me this year. Or, you know, or times I'm not going to play you. He warned me in the off season, And so the season started, and I didn't get off to a good start. I struggled the first three games and really looked bad. And we were playing the Dallas Mavericks. And so – I remember I look up at my wife in the stands and the time that I normally would go in the game, he didn't put me in. And I kind of looked at her. I was like, okay, you can ready to mess with my minutes. And so most guys will go south. They'll, you know, start to stall. I was like, okay, you about, I'm, I'm down there saying, you better not put me in that game. I'll tell you that. Put me in. See what happens. Just down there to myself. We're down by 20. In the first half, it was a home opener. We'd already struggled the first two games on the road. Fans are booing. So he finally looks down there with about five minutes to go in the second quarter. He wasn't going to play me. And so he finally calls my name. I go in the game. In five minutes, I scored 12 points. Mm-hmm. Okay. I finished the game with 37. He puts me in the lineup. So he goes from not going to play me. So the next game he starts, and it's against the Clippers. And uh, so I don't know if it was exactly against the Clippers, but it was a couple of games after whatever. But he starts me. And so first half, you know, I'm playing good defense. I made up my mind. I'm going to focus on defense even if I can't get the ball because I'm playing with Tom Chambers and Kevin Johnson, okay? So at times I'm not going to get the ball. So I'm focusing on defense to make sure he doesn't take me out if I'm not scoring. So that's what I'm doing in the first half. And uh, so Reggie Williams, a rookie from Georgetown, you know, he starts talking smack. And he's wearing me out in the first half. I think he had like about eight. Wait, what's he, what's he saying to you, Eddie? You can't guard me. You know, who are you? You know, just, just smack talking, you know. I'm kicking your butt. And I'm not going to get more, you know, more elaborate than what he said, but some curse words in there. And I said, okay. All right. So I got the steal. I go down and I put a little URL move on. I think it was Charles Smith. 
And I was like, take that, you mother. So uh, so Charles Smith heard me. So now they start talking a little smack. So the half end, we're walking off the court. And Reggie Williams walks past me and said, well, he's busting your ass. Okay. I said, you'll see me in the second half. And so I walk immediately up to Kevin Johnson. And I said, I don't care who you run the play for. I'm sh- you give me the ball the first four or five minutes. I'm going to be hot, I promise you. Give me the ball. Love I it. got out there I got out there with about nine minutes to go before halftime ended. As soon as Cotton shut up, I ran out there on the court, started shooting. You know, because I hadn't been shooting. I didn't take many shots in the first half. So as soon as the second half started, I'm telling you, I think I must have ran off about 10 straight, and I'm just talking smack to him. And, take that, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can't guard me. So Gene, Gene shoot, who the coach takes him out. And so I walk over to the bench, and I look at Gene shoot. I said, Gene. I don't care who you put. He put like Gondrasic on there. The guy played at UNLV. I said, I don't care who you put in this game. Any one of y'all, I'm going to wear y'all all out, right? And so they been started laughing. And, and Arsenio Hall was sitting on the baseline, and he used to talk a lot of smack, right? And, and so and I'm telling him, I'm like, it's over. I'm going to work. And... Lo and behold, I'm telling you, as you know, I have 43 and a half. And I'm telling you, I wore out mm-hmm. everybody they put on me, from Charles Smith to Danny Manning. It did not matter. It was just one of those games, man. And, you know, people can, they can get it on YouTube. I even condensed it for them, okay? I even, like, <laughs> put each bucket in a six-minute video on YouTube. Uh, Eddie Johnson, 43 in six minutes. Uh, you can check it out. Uh, it's just, it's mm-hmm. one of them games, man, that I just had that I'll never forget. I mean, I, I watched it the other night. I watched the full, I watched the full second half. What, what better do I have to do in quarantine than to watch? Yeah. Did you see, did you see those Euro steps? Eddie Johnson you see those Euro steps I was putting on? Before you know, Euro even come out, man, I'm doing Euro on people, man. We didn't call it Europe. Yeah, before you, know you even went to Europe to play. Uh, yeah, I call it. I call it in the city move. That's in the city move. Euro. That wasn't Euro. <laughs> I want. I want to get to. I want to get to one of your other big games, but it, it was in a loss. But it was with Seattle. But before we get to that, Seattle. When you get there as a vet, and Gary Payton's there, what was your first experience with? GP, you got to stop running your mouth. Yeah, well, first, the worst trade the Suns ever made. You know, they traded me for X-Man, who I loved X-Man. You know, I used to fight and, and battle all the time. But uh, but anyway, the Suns did trade me to, to Seattle in my uniform, by the way. Uh, Cotton was so afraid to tell me that he allowed me to get dressed, and then he had to come tell me. And I'd take my uniform. Wait, wait, wait. That's wait. One. wait, 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 hold on. Go ahead. Start, start that again. You were in uniform when he told you? Yeah. Matter of fact, he got, on the, he got on the elevator on our way down to the bus to go to the game. And normally when I would encounter him, he would always be like, you know, because he always wanted me to have a great game. And he said, you got to be ready tonight. Be ready. Be ready. Normally that's what he would say. But this particular time, he didn't get on. He didn't say anything. He got on the elevator, had his head down the whole time. And I just felt like something was wrong, like something's wrong, you know. And so I get to the game, and I don't even put my uniform on. I'm just sitting there. And everybody knows I'm one of the first ones out there shooting. Coaches, like, trying to grab me. I think Paul Westfall, Lionel Holland, assistant coaches on the team. they trying to grab me to get me out there to shoot. And I'm like, I'm not going out there. And they're like, why? I said, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. And I wouldn't. And so I was just sitting in the locker room. So I finally went out there for about three or four minutes. And then I came back in. And I remember Kenny Battles on that team. He was like, what's wrong with you, man? I was like, I don't feel right, man. I, I think I might be out of here. He's like, how do you know that? I said, because Cotton didn't speak to me. And, and really, I mean, I, I played for this man for six years. And he had never not done that to me. And I knew of the trade deadline. And I had heard the rumbling. And I said, no, I'm out of here, man. I think I'm out of here. And so, lo and behold, I go back in the locker room. 
and he calls me in this room and he crying, you know, and uncontrollably. And so, you know, I'm crying. <laughs> and I knew. I just asked him. I said, where am I going? And he said, you're going to Seattle. And immediately, and I mean immediately, my mind went to Seattle. It went to, okay, let me see who's on this team. What do they have? And the game was going on, and I'm still getting dressed because a car had to come get me and all of that. So I'm just going through everything in my mind, and I'm saying to myself, okay, we got Gary Payton. We got Derek McKee. We got Sean Kemp. We got Dana Barrow. We got Dale Ellis at the time, because they hadn't traded Dale Ellis yet. We got Michael Kane. I'm like, man, this team got talent. That's mm-hmm. all I thought about. This team got talent. And I'm like, I can be the difference. Now, I'm leaving a 55-win team to a team that had won, had lost 14 out of the last 16 games when I showed up. And I'm saying to myself, and Casey Jones was the coach, and I'm saying to myself, I don't care about this. I can help this team. I, I've been taught how to win. And so that was my mindset. And so they're – they want an East Coast trip as well. So I had to meet them in Milwaukee. And I was so gung-ho to get to them, I could have taken a couple of days. I didn't have to meet them in Milwaukee, but I did. And I met them in Milwaukee. I walk in the hotel, and they hadn't checked in their rooms yet. They had just gotten in themselves. And I run into Sedell 3. And you have to know Sedell 3 to understand what he said to me when he initially saw me. You know, because he was a very good competitor. Uh, but at the time, I didn't really know him that well. He looks at me and he says, welcome to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and it just totally took me to another place. It did. It said, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, they don't even want to win. That's what, That was my mindset. And then, you know, I went up to visit with Casey Jones, and the first question he asked me is, uh, well, Eddie, how do you like to be you? And I was like, I am in the twilight zone. I said, I've played against this man forever. He knows how I play, but yet he's asking me? So I was like, I remember I went back to my room and I called my wife. I said, you know what, honey, I don't know. I was excited about being here. I don't know. And as the season went on, I started to see how talented they were. We didn't know how to win. Gary talked too much. And I remember one day at practice, I was there for about two weeks. And I remember he kept disrupting practice. And Gary's a smart guy. He had he had a right to talk in that regard because I got to know him. He really knows the game, obviously. He's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest defenders ever now. But at the time, he was a rookie. And rookies were not supposed to talk under my watch. Because that's that's what it was for me. And I just couldn't get over the fact that this rookie kept talking. You know, and I let it go for two weeks. And I asked Nate McMillan, I said, is it a point in time, man, when you all, like, going to say something to him? And Nate was like, man, you know. You know, Nate kind of shook it off. And I said, well, I'm going to say something. And lo and behold, one practice, he's got the yapping and, you know, coaches going over stuff and he yapping and he yapping. And I just finally said, would you shut the F up and let the coaches talk? Now, I knew two things were going to happen, you know, because Gary had, you know, that back in the entourage days. And Gary had some guys that were truly a positive entourage. They weren't a negative. Uh, they really looked out for him because of his mouth. They were some big dudes. So what nobody gonna mess with Gary. <laughs> but uh but they were very nice guys. I had gotten to know them in the two weeks. And after I did that, they even came up from behind me and said, Eddie, we so glad you did that. So I mean <laughs> they, they they even knew it, you know, and because it humbled Gary. And I knew he either was gonna want to fight or it was going to mess up chemistry, and he was a number two pick, and that was their future, he and Sean Kemp, that I'd be out of there because he didn't like it. But, you know, to his defense, he looked at me. He tried to, He wanted to battle initially, 
And then he didn't say anything. And he let it go. And I grabbed him and I said, look, man, I, I, I couldn't win early in my career either. I said, but man, I just come from a team, man, where we're winning 50 plus games every year. We're going to conference finals. I said, I know what I'm talking about. The hierarchy is, man, kind of let the veterans do their thing, man. You kind of blend in. And as it goes, man, then yeah, because you are the point guard. And he understood it and he let it go. And he and I became very good friends uh, after that. But it took me to get him to do that and for me to get him and Sean Kemp to show up for 10 o'clock practice at exactly maybe 930 instead of 1005 uh, in, in those situations. And once we started doing that, they made a coaching change. They brought in George Carl. Our team took off and we started to play. And those guys, you know the rest of the story with, with Gary and Sean Kemp. I mean, they became tremendous basketball players. Well, part of that rest of the story, the 92-93 season, as you talk about when you're under George Carl, though that playoff run in the Western Conference for you guys is epic. So you win a game five over the Jazz in the first round when the series was only mm-hmm. five games. You had 24 in game four to force the game five. Then you go to the Western Conference semis. You win 4-3 over the Rockets. That game seven's in overtime despite 23-17, nine assists from Akeem. And then in the Western Conference Finals, game seven against Phoenix, Barkley goes for 44-24 and 24 on just 20 field goal attempts. Uh-huh. Take me through that game seven against Phoenix with the Suns. Yeah, you know, it was a game that I looked forward to because I was so appreciative of my teammates for really carrying me up until that point. Uh, in the Rockets series, uh, I, I, I made a half-court shot at the end of the uh, third quarter that kind of changed the series, really, because the Rockets were kicking our butt. And Michael Cage threw me a pass, and about one second left, I threw it from half-court, and it went in. And it got our crowd just into the game. They went crazy. And it gave us an opportunity to take control of the series. And at that time, when I took that shot, I pulled my calf. And I didn't realize how bad it was. I continued to play on it, and it got worse and worse as that Houston series went on to a point where I was just a decoy in that series. George would just put me out there and just tell me stand in the corner because I really couldn't move. I couldn't. I was playing on one leg. And so I was just hoping and praying that once we got through that series that I'd be able to get healthy. And lo and behold, I still wasn't healthy in the Sun series. And so they got they won the first game, we won the second. We go home game three, chance to really take control of the series. I have a really poor game. George is not letting on to people that I'm injured. I'm mad that people are ripping me and I can't talk about my injury. <laughs> you know, in, in day and age now where guys get information on their injury in a heartbeat, right? But no one yeah. can talk about it. And it was it, it really was hurting me because they were ripping me. They were thinking I couldn't play and I was choking, but literally I was playing on one leg. And so as the series continued, we got to a game six. We got to the game five. And uh, so in game five, I went to see a doctor here in Phoenix, okay? Lo and behold, the son's team doctor. And he's a very good friend of mine. His name is Skip Steingard. And I met him at a different location. And I told him, I said, you know what, Skip? I don't think it's my calf. I think it's my back. And so he started working on me, and he got me feeling better. So we go back for game. They beat us game five. And then we go back, and we beat them game six. And I'm still having this issue, but it's not as bad. And so I go Wait, in hold early. Up, what, what, Eddie, Eddie, one moment. Well, one moment. Let me interrupt you. So you're playing Phoenix in the in the Western Conference Finals, mm-hmm. and the guy working on your back at the time was the Phoenix Suns doctor? Yeah, of course. But he was a good friend of mine. And the Suns wasn't going to be ticked about that. I mean, it, you know, things really shared doctors back at that time. Uh and like I said, he was like a family friend. He became a family friend to me. He and I played racquetball together. There's no way he was going to ignore me. Uh, and so, <laughs> plus, he, you know, plus, look, look, I got an insurance card. And if I go to his practice and he refuses to help me, I bet that's going to look on him. So, no, he did it. 
And so game before game seven, I, I went in earlier before the team to get worked on. So I flew in earlier. And uh, I got there, and he worked on me, and he finally got me right. It was my back. And I was feeling so good. The team was like, you know, doing shoot around. I was letting, making them know, man, I don't have any pain, man. I'm going forward, man. I got to reward you guys. You know, y'all been carrying me, man. I, I got to do my part. And and so that was my focus. And so they all knew it. Uh, they made a they made purpose of theirs to get me the ball. Uh, George knew it. And so, but the Suns didn't know it. The Suns only knew that they had an Eddie Johnson that couldn't play in the series. And they changed their focus away from me and put it on other people. Like Vincent Askew, who was playing more minutes than me, because they didn't think that, you know, I was doing anything. And so George ran plays for me right away, and I got, you know, I started knocking down shots. And once I started knocking down shots, it's over. And so, but we needed it because Charles, as you know, it was playing unbelievable, man. That was the best year Charles Barkley ever played in his life. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was just pretty much unstoppable, man. And they got a big lead on us. I was able to get hot in that third quarter. We got it below 10, I think. Put a scare into him. We had a chance. But, you know, when a team goes to the free throw line, I think they shot like, what, 45 free throws? How are you going to beat them? I mean, it was just... You know, it was just one of those situations where, you know, we started to think, oh, yeah, the league wants the Suns there to play against Michael, Charles and Michael and all of that. The bottom line was Charles was just unbelievable, man. And even my effort wasn't good enough for us to try to steal that game seven and get to the final. Let's be real here. You, you didn't just hit a few shots in the third quarter. You had 18 in the third quarter. You finished at 34, the only offense for Seattle that night. And the fouls were plus 11 the other way. And they were 57 for 64 from the free throw line. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, we know we're no way you can win. I mean, John Kemp was in foul trouble early. Uh, Ricky Pierce got in foul trouble. Uh, Michael Cade. I mean, all of our big guys got in foul trouble. But he, here's the thing, and this is what I reflected on after they beat us. And I, I told the guys, and, and they eventually obviously went to the final a couple of years later. Uh, Should have went two years three years in a row, really. I mean, they got upset by Denver the one year, but and I had gotten traded. Uh, but the one thing uh, that I just told those guys is is that we didn't take it serious enough back then to take advantage of a situation when we had them. You know, we beat them. We made it a 1-1 series on their floor. We celebrated a little bit too much, and we went there, and they got us in game three. And we should have known better because the Lakers had them in the first round that year down 0-2 and they were able to come back and win all three games and win that short series, best of five. So uh, we were taught a lesson. And unfortunately for me, you know, they couldn't pay me and Ricky Pierce, so they decided to go with Ricky, and uh, then I moved on to Charlotte. Eddie, your your career extensive. Obviously, we talked about the teams you've already played for, and you went on to play the Pacers and, and Rockets. But the one that's really interesting to me is you played a, a season in Charlotte with the Hornets on a team that featured Muggsy Bogues, Larry Johnson, Alonzo Mourning, also had Tony Bennett and Del Curry. But, but as for that core, I'm curious. You guys were good offensively, but terrible on the defensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just curious, though, if the issues between LJ and Mourning never came to a head, and I'm curious about what those issues even were, but if they hadn't come to a head, how, how good could that core have been long term? You know, uh, it was a very good team. Injuries played a part uh, on that team as well. The one year I was there, uh, Larry Johnson's back started to bother him, uh, and he missed a lot of games. Uh, I know Alonzo got injured as well. Uh, He missed a lot of games. Uh, A lot of times we played with only eight players uh, for a number of games uh, during that season. And yeah, it, it was some, some definitely some sensitivity between those two. Uh, and I, to this day, don't totally know what it is because they both were getting a ton of attention. Uh, but on the basketball court, you would have never thought it. I mean, they played very unselfish together. They truly did. Uh, it never carried over to the court. I guess you can probably 
you know, say it was because of Muggsy Bogues, who was a very uh, good leader in keeping guys focused and, and in a good mood, a jovial mood. Uh, Dale Curry, the same way. Uh, we had a Scott Burrell on that team that was always keeping us laughing in the locker room. He and David Wingate. I mean, it was a very good collection of players. Kenny Gaddison was a great leader on that team. We had Mike Jaminski on that team. When Hersey, wasn't your, your Westinghouse guy, Hersey yeah, Hawkins, Hersey. on that team? And, and, and Hersey. But Hersey's quiet. Hersey's a quiet leader. You know, Hersey didn't say much. He just went out and did his job. But, yeah, he was on that team as well. Uh, very talented basketball team. Uh, but, yeah, those two had their issues. And, and it never, like I got to say, it never carried over onto the court. But you could tell that it was some friction there between them. But that wasn't the reason we struggled that year. It was just injuries really kept us in a tough situation. Mm -hmm. All right, Eddie, we, we, we've, kept you, we've kept you a while. And I want to ask you one broadcasting question before our final rejecting the screen question. I know Adam's got to go, too. We've, everybody's juggling all sorts of things with kids at home and, and jobs elsewhere. We had Seth Partnow on a few weeks ago, and I sent you the clip. And Seth was the director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. He started the, he was one of the first in the analytics movement. He started Nylon Calculus, which was a site that I'm, I doubt you've, you've ever been to. I asked him what broadcasters get wrong when it comes to analytics. And I know that on the radio, you get into this all the time. And he said, broadcasters don't take the time to understand it. And he used the example of Chris Paul. He said, I hear it all the time. Chris Paul takes an elbow jumper and he hear a broadcaster will say, well, analytics, the analytics guys will tell you that's an awful shot. But Seth Partnow says, well, no, for Chris Paul, that's a really good shot. The analytics will tell you that's a really good shot. So how do you view the game and try to balance the analytics to try to understand it? Well, I mean, it, it, look, he's right. They're not going to say anything to Chris Paul. But that's the problem. Why are they saying anything anyway? See, that, that's the issue. So a guy has to prove to them that he can do it, and then it's okay that he can do it. That's not how basketball works. Okay, if that was the case, then I guarantee you I wouldn't have made the league. If a coach didn't allow me to take chances and, and make me prove it to him in practice, and I get that chance in games, I wouldn't have been able to prove a lot of things that I've been able to do on the basketball court. So that's my issue. My issue is they look at the stats and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy can take the mid-range. Oh, yeah, that guy can, but that guy can't. And no matter what that guy does, if he does it in a game, he's going to get ridiculed for it because he should not do it. You don't get better at the game that way. The great Larry Bird and Magic Johnson used to always say, and everybody did it, but they were the more notable ones because they were out there and they can get the microphone in front of their face. They say, look, I go home every year and work on something to improve my game. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they get the chance to go do it. Well, a lot of guys don't, right? Like Roy Hibbert never got the chance to prove he could maybe make a jumper. They just ran him out the league. They didn't give him a chance. Right. You know, so that's my issue with them. It's not that I've always been into stats. Stats are very important, but they're not that important to where you got guys sticking their face in the game and telling guys they can't do this. And a two and a long two is worse than a three. Not if he can't make the three. What if his range is only 19 feet? Just, just what if like his range is only 19 feet? Because a point in time in our lives, when we first picked up a basketball, when you were little, you couldn't shoot the ball no further than four feet. And then you backed up, then you backed up, then you backed up as you got stronger and more confident. So what if an 18-footer is the best shot? Why do you talk about him and say it's a bad shot? Because he could step back a foot and he can make it a three. Well, what if he can't make the three? Like LeBron, right? LeBron couldn't make the three. Dwayne Wade couldn't make the three, but they bought into it and they lost to the Dallas Mavericks because they wanted to keep taking threes. The next year, what did they do? Didn't take threes. They went right to what makes them good, and they won two in a row. So that's my issue, is that don't tell people they can't do it. You know, they can do it if you allow them to work on it, and the mid-range game leads to you making more threes 
because it gives you more confidence to go take it. When you're 0 for 5, like Christoph Porzingis was at times this year, and the Dallas Mavericks fans booing him and saying he's soft, he can't play, you know, he can't post. Really? When you, when their boy went down, okay, and he is their boy, don't get me wrong, okay? That's their boy, all right? But when their boy went down and he got injured and he wasn't out there facilitating for everybody, it's about Luca, all right, what happened? Kristaps turned into what? A hell of a player. Mm. Not only was he making threes, but he was making twos. He was posting up. And the threes got better because he had confidence. That's why I tell these analytic guys, you want to argue with somebody, go find somebody that you're going to beat because they'll never beat me in this argument because it's not basketball when you condense anybody from just being a layup guy to a three-point shooter. It's not basketball. Yeah, there's and there's a longer conversation. There's a longer conversation to have with it, but but Adam's gonna Adam's gonna close it out with the the rejecting the screen question. The podcast is called Rejecting the Screen, so we always ask our guests, any guy, just can't say Jordan, but any guy outside of that, throughout your career, you played against, you played with, or you observed that you would choose end of game situation, game seven, life on the line. Who are you going to choose? to reject the screen and go ISO for you to go get a bucket? Hmm. I mean, if, if that's the case, then I'm going to go with the, the Jordan clone. I'm going to go with Kobe in that regard. Uh, if, if I had to pick somebody, just the way you presented it, right? Because mm-hmm. i tell you right now, after MJ, I'd pick Magic or I'd pick, I'll pick LeBron. And and that's because they'll go create shots, but not just themselves, everybody else. But if that guy's going to take the shot and he's going to reject the screen, he's going to go ISO. I would take I would I would take Kobe, and I would probably take a young Larry Bird. It's hard to, to dissect the two. <laughs> okay, <I'm> sorry, <laughs> but I, I'm taking both of them as one as one bees. Uh, I would go with those two guys. Understandable. Eddie, um, we appreciate it. How did you feel just spending an hour talking hoops with Justin Termini's name not coming up at all? Well, I feel a lot better when I get the check in the mail. Oh, you keep looking. <laughs> you keep looking for, as Chris Rock says, I go to, every day I go hey, to my mailbox looking for but, my OJ but, prize. Nothing. But any, any day without Termini, okay, I had to deal with him for two hours before I talked to you guys. Any day without him and me, and, me being able to talk on the show, is tremendous. All right, well, we're glad we were able to bring your blood pressure level down. Eddie, we appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right, so I don't know if you could tell. They're all, we had all sorts of <laughs> technical problems during that. Given that we're in different environments doing these things these days, we appreciate you all hanging in with us. There are multiple times that I got kicked off the internet for the Uber conference, and I went to the phone, and then Adam had his three-year-old Hudson with him for a certain period of time. And then we couldn't communicate because we weren't looking at each other and we're trying to text, but we figured it out and we hope it sounded somewhat seamless. And and again, just like anybody else that we have on the program, Eddie is no different. And Adam had to go because he had a hard out at a certain time. So he's on a separate work call. So I'll wrap this up myself. Eddie, just like anybody else, that we've had on, there are just so many different ways that we can take a conversation. We never know where they're going to go. And especially going on, starting with what it was like being in Chicago, growing up sixth of seven kids without a dad, his mom raising the kids, keeping basketball as the focus of his life to keep him away from drugs and guns and the gangs. And that's what it did. And, and Eddie is, I've known Eddie for for quite some time, and and he is one of the the true gentlemen in the NBA. And you can listen to him on SiriusXM NBA Radio with Justin Termini, a good friend of mine, and who we mentioned at the very end of the podcast. They're on from four to seven Eastern time, Monday through Friday, on SiriusXM NBA Radio, and you can watch Eddie whenever the NBA gets going again. He's been the longtime Suns TV analyst, Eddie Johnson, one of the great scorers, and I do believe he still is. Definitely retired as, but I do believe he still is 
the highest score in NBA history, 19,202 points that never made an all-star game. You can follow Adam on Twitter at NaismithLives. I'm at Noah Koslov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Also, check out the new podcast, The Big Board, with Chad Ford. He's back, the NBA draft guru, formerly of ESPN, The Big Board podcast here on the Lockdown Podcast Network. And if you're at home and you want to listen, not with your headphones in, you can just tell your smart device. If you got Alexa, you got Google, whatever, just say, hey, Alexa, play the big board on the Locked On Podcast Network or play Rejecting the Screen. But check out the Chad Ford Podcast, the big board here on Locked On. Also, Hollinger and Duncan, Locked On NBA, Locked On Fantasy Hoops, and of course, your team every day, all 30 of them every day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Rejecting the Screen, Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Locked On Podcast Network.